right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the New York Comedy Club podcast. I am your host, Nick Angelo, brought to you by Paperhouse Network. And I am joined today by, wow, some heavy hitters in the comedy club industry. We got uh, Emilio Savone, E. Scott Linder, and Al Martin all here on the episode. Uh, fellas, thanks for coming on. Uh, this is, should be a fun, fun episode. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. As soon as I heard that you had a book coming out, I wrote these guys. And I said, we have to have them on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and just for our listeners. I'm glad to be here. For our listeners, Al is the owner of the Broadway Comedy Club, uh, which has two two uh, stages, and then he's the owner also of the Grand Village Comedy Club, and he was was the owner of the New York Comedy Club and and a mentor of Scott and I, and uh, and a good friend, um, and and you know so at one point Al had three comedy clubs <laughs> and four stages in New York, and you know Scott and I always. Whenever things get really tough, we always kind of look at each other and say, how the fuck did Al do this by himself? Actually, <laughs> five stages. Broadway had three. That's true. That's true. You had the cafe. And then there was also oh, the New York right. Comedy Club in Boca. Right. Right. You know, it was three at different periods of time. Like, I had Boca with New York and Broadway simultaneously. So, yeah, I'm always, I was always juggling three clubs for quite a while. How you did it by yourself is is unbelievable. <laughs> God bless you. See all the you. gray hair. You see all the gray hair and the high <laughs> blood pressure, and that that that's the result of that, guys. Yeah, I can't imagine where we're going to be in. Uh, I can't imagine where we're going to be in a week, let alone 20, <laughs> let alone twenty years. You know, you deal with so many constituencies in our business, and all of them have some level of insanity. You know. Uh, uh, wait staff fighting with each other and very territorial, you know, your managers fight with each other, you know, the comics fight with everybody, uh, the, uh, the, your neighbors next door, which I'm sure you, you've experienced Yelp reviews. So it's all like all insanity, you know, customers who are entitled vendors who are insane. I mean, it's like so many different areas that you get hit with. That you know, um, oh, did I lose you there for a sec? No, we're here. Okay, yeah, my, uh, um, yeah. So you guys get it after five years now. I think actually you're in your sixth year now, right? Yeah, we lost your video though, Al. Yeah, I'm coming back on. All right. uh, it's all right. I'll edit out this little piece. We'll just wait till we see you again. There it is. is. There we go. So we were you were saying we're in our sixth year now. Yeah. yeah, you're in your July will be six, right? Yeah, 2014. That's right. Yeah, which is which is crazy to think of. It seems like it's <laughs> gone so fast. But I always tell Emilio, you know, he wants to have anniversary parties every year, and I always want to wait. I want to. I, I wanted to have one in one year, five years, and then ten years. Um, you know, but in, until ten years, I feel like it's still potentially not going to work. And also, obviously, with the pandemic. We have no idea what's about to happen. You know, we're, we're yeah, yeah. I mean, the pandemic proves that five year plans are useless. You know, what ten, 10 years plans are impossible. We really don't know what we're opening up to. And I mean, there are two missions one to be able to get to open. And then once we open, what are we opening to? I know. I, I mean, I told Emilio the other day, 
you know, if if we can open and just break even, I'm going to be at least a little bit happy. I just want some semblance of normalcy. You know, I just want to be able to open, break even, and then just build up from there. You know, but I, you know, I don't know, man. I really don't know what it's going to look like. There are two theories. I mean, basically, I think two theories, unless you guys know another one. Uh, one is that we're, we're going to open and there's going to be a pent up demand and people are going to want to get out. Uh, they've been, you know, stir crazy. And then the other point of view is that a lot of people, and I'm finding this very weirdly so, but more among young people than older people, you know, but they are terrified of some, some people I listen to going into crowded spaces again and uh, performing. And um, uh, so we don't really know. And from an economic point of view, we're being asked to open at a reduced capacity and a lot of expenses will not be reduced. What you pay your comedians, what you pay, you know, maybe your insurance bill will come down somewhat. And you're, you know, based on less usage, maybe your sanitation bill will come down. But, you know, Con Edison will charge you the same if you open your doors and put on the air conditioner. Uh, the, the, the cable Wi-Fi bill is going to be the same. So a lot of, you know, workman's comp, disability, all that stuff doesn't change really. So let alone rent. it's going to be a challenge. Do you call yourself a music fan? Are you the one making the playlist for all the parties? Then you've got to listen to the Pinch Music Podcast, where we interview musicians, engineers, producers, and music lovers of all types. We even put together playlists for any and all occasions. So if you want to have the Beatles vs. Stones debate, pick up some engineering tips, or just discover a new artist, you got to check out the Pinch Music Podcast, all a part of the Paperhouse Network. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely, you know... The rent situation in New York is pretty crazy for commercial leases. You know, it's kind of the Wild West and figuring out how everybody's going to deal with it. You know, Amelia and I have been have been taking it month by month, talking to landlords, trying to figure out how how we're going to approach this. And there's no real answers. There's no definitive answers on how we're supposed to be doing this. Yeah, I mean, you just have. I mean, that is going to be a key for any business in New York working out there arrangement with their landlord, whatever that might translate to, to get you to the point where you're going to be able to reopen. I mean, that and a combination of, uh, you know, financing and PPP and poo 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 and uh, (laughs) UIL and EIUL and PUA and whatever you get just to get you there um, or help get you there. But those things don't help too much. They're like band-aids because if you read them, 75%, 75%, if you want it forgiven, 75% has to go back to the employees, which leaves you 25%. Now, there, there's a bill in getting ready to be presented in Congress that's going to change that formula. And it looks like it's going to go from 75-25 to 40-60. So you might now be able to use 40% of that money and give it, <laughs> give it to your landlord and... 60% will go to your employees and then they're going to widen the period of time that you have rather than eight weeks to like 20 weeks or something like that. So, but that's, you know, they're fighting it out in, in, in the red and the blue, you know, uh, deciding uh, when they're going to do that, but there'll be a compromise. And I think the, the, it'll be a little better. Uh, but 
I've talked to a lot of people that are not going to go for forgiveness. They're going to use it as a low interest loan and not pay it, not ask for forgiveness and just keep the money and, you know, use the money to do what they need. But, but it's not fair to us when you think about it. We've been asked to stop our livelihood for what will turn out to be close to six months. And if we want to continue our livelihood, we're the schmucks that have to go out and borrow money to, we have to take on debt just to get to where we were. Well, that's the thing is that fault of our own is that it's, it's, it's great. I mean, it's all just debt. I mean, it's, you know, call it what it is, you know, in, 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 in actual, like, you know, implementation of these loans and especially with the PPP, it's not really functional in the way they want us to do it. You know, um, it doesn't Correct. really work out in, in, in the real world. And, and, and honestly, those eight weeks that we're supposed to use all this money is almost up already. Anyway, what's going to happen right. after and that? They still have not, they still, it's almost up and they still have not come up with the final guidelines. For it. It's so that's mess. why it's, it's going to get extended. Uh, it's well, it's going to turn out to be more like 20 weeks when it's all said and done. You know, but what if someone was really good about it and did all this planning for eight weeks and dispersed the money, and now he finds out he could have done it in twenty weeks? Or, or I mean, it's just you know that's that's the problem. And then the other thing is, what if you did exactly how they wanted you to do it and dispersed the seventy five percent somehow? Somehow dispersed all this money to employees that that are are, are making more money on unemployment anyway. Right. right. You know, so. and then and then. Do you trust the government to be like, oh, you did everything correctly? We're forgiving it. I, I don't trust the government to right. forgive these you loans. Come on, all this money to yeah, and then you owe it back anyway. Gonna, yeah, you're going to turn around and say uh, forgiveness denied. <laughs> and now, oh, wait a second, employees, can you give me that money I just gave you? I mean, it's crazy. It's it, it, the, the whole thing is really. And now, after everything is said and done, I get some email from the SBA offering to lend me money uh, as a regular SBA loan besides everything else. So I don't know where that all came from, but I don't know if you got one of those also. I don't know if they built the mailing list for people that were applying for the PPP, but they've now also sent me a request to see if I want to apply for a regular SBA loan. So, you know, it's so disorganized. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it I mean, really in, is. yeah, I mean, in full transparency, you know, we've gotten a lot of loans, we've gotten a lot of offers, um, but at the end of the day, you know, if we if we take all these loans and if we spend all these loans, we're going to be in debt the rest of our lives. Yeah, you know, so yeah. it, 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 it's a it's a it's a sticky situation because you know we're gonna I don't know. There's it's like a puzzle. A million, and I, then, it's like a puzzle trying to figure out where to how to how to yeah. make this all work. And then you're in debt now for years and years and years. And you, there's an outside possibility you wouldn't have minded some of this if you knew you were going to be able to return to business as it was. But that's, that's not guaranteed. There's a lot of people talking about getting the heck out of this city, not coming back. They hated it, blah, blah, blah. Now, on the other side of that equation, I've seen this kind of thing happen before where people wuss out, they leave New York. And then the real estate values go way down. And then it becomes attractive again for people to come back. They say, oh, man, that studio a year ago that was going for 2800 is now going for 1500 
you know, maybe I come back and take a shot on New York again. I've seen that. I've seen it happen. But how long will that take? We have no idea. And that's how many casualties of war will there be, you know, business-wise, you know, till that happens again, that New York makes its comeback. Now, Al, let me ask you this. Uh, a lot of clubs, including the New York Comedy Club, have kind of moved to uh, an online uh show a live streaming show a zoom show just to kind of stay relevant uh what have you been doing during this time to you know keep the brand relevant and have you done anything online via zoom or whatever yeah we've 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 tried a couple we do have a standing improv show that has been on our website uh that they really have it down pat you know where it's pretty entertaining and I like it. You know, it's that very balance you have to strike between the quality of what you're putting up uh, so that your brand doesn't look like garbage versus, you know, getting something up, you know, and staying relevant. So we've tried, we tried one open mic, which was, in my view, disastrous. And then we tried uh, a stand-up show which basically morphed into a, 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 a podcast, you know, a video podcast, video audio podcast. And that's, that's to me, seems the best. Um, I like Zoom for a lot of things. You know, if I was running a business where I had to meet with my employees from five different locations instead of us all, you know, schlepping into Manhattan and having a, a staff meeting, you know, great idea. Great idea for um, uh, conventions or whatever you have to do that you don't have to all run to be in the same place. But I really, I'm still having trouble of, um, enjoying zoom for stand-up comedy because the important thing is getting the audience feedback from it. And, um, that's always been something that I just, it's awkward. I see it has to be more of a production where you have a guy behind the scenes, you know, three seconds to you, four seconds to you, because I find that people were stepping on each other and the podcast format, they're stepping on each other. So I really see a potential maybe for two possible shows reoccurring that we would do, um, or three ideas, but you know, a heavy volume of shows, I'm just not there, you know, and you know, we're talking about two months till we reopen. So there's always other content we could fill in there uh, that we could try to, but I, I, I got to admire the, the amount of stuff that, that New York comedy club's been doing. Um, you know, I haven't watched it to know if it certifies my thoughts on, <laughs> on all of this, but, but you're trying and you're putting it out there. You know, there are a lot, most clubs are not uh, maybe one or two others are, uh, trying stuff. We, we've tried stuff and, you know, I don't want to be a dinosaur. I want to, I want to I want to be on the cutting edge of stuff. I'm just not sure. I, I like the zoom stuff, you know? Um, yeah, I think, I think everyone right now, I mean, I think anyone who tries to do it, um, or tries to do anything for that matter, uh, I think they're at least getting some wiggle room that the expectation is going to be a little lower than normal. So you're kind of getting a pass on some of this stuff. But, you know, and now, of course, the drive-in show, right, is becoming a thing. Right, right. You know, and, and it's funny, you know, for me personally, 
like when the Zoom stuff was happening, I like wanted to jump on it very quickly. Um, I, I, for whatever reason, I felt like, you know what, why can it be something people have podcasts, you know, things tend to be kind of leaning towards the virtual virtual. Oh, there is a virtual comedy thing that's been kind of bubbling up anyway, whether it's videos or live streaming. And again, it's totally different than watching a standup show on Netflix. Obviously it's a completely different format, but I, I still felt like the zoom stuff, there is something there and it's also scaled. So if I'm a comic, right, I now have the ability to probably get a 500, 600, 700 people on a Zoom show. I know that can kind of be a disaster because then you have all these people, because you're right, you need a tech manager. So you, you need know, a luck- tech person, yeah, you need so- a producer. But you know, haven't we had this ability for quite a while? It's called streaming, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've, we've had the ability to have, you know, we had rooftop comedy in our club for years that was doing acts. I know uh, there was another club or two in Manhattan that had rooftop comedy in their streaming. Yeah. And we had the capability to bring in an act, uh, you know, pay the X amount of dollars and then do pay-per-view throughout the country. Yeah. And for whatever reason, it didn't really work out that well, you know? So when I see that with all the technology involved, I'm just not convinced Zoom gets us to, it might be a nice little band-aid, but I think these these drive-in shows, Zoom shows, all of this stuff, the second we're allowed to reopen again, I think people are going back to that. Yeah, yeah well, I just, hold on. I just, uh, yeah. just want to uh, explain to the listeners, um, yes, a drive-in show is exactly what you think it is. Uh, there are people parking in open parking lots and comics are kind of standing in, on a makeshift stage or back of a truck and doing yes. comedy as if it was a drive-in theater uh, for those who are listening and being like, what the hell is a drive-in show? But that's what it is. But, but Emilio, go ahead. But for some reason, I think what, what I was going to say was, oh, for some reason, the drive-in show, even though it's more of an attempt to try to get back to normalcy, I think, actually, for some reason, gives me a lot more anxiety. I don't know what it is. Scott and I talked about it privately. It's just the whole – and again, I, I think it's great. And, and, you know, I'm sure we'll probably get involved in it in some way because that's, we tend to get involved in whatever we can. Um, but I don't know, like when, you know, it's just a whole. Or well, down in Atlantic that. city, someone did it. Yeah. Now, and then they did yeah. it in, uh, and they did it in, uh, Bel Air and, uh, in Astoria too. And now I think there's gonna be some stuff coming out in LA. I it's mean, look, or- organize, hold on, so organizing a whole drive-in show. It just seems like so well, let me tell you. Let me explain to you. Whereas I know Zoom somebody, at least is like, hey, we're online. You get some one person, right. the tech manager, you know. But the drive, I, mean, I, I feel like I got to get my edge in here because I have very yeah. strong opinions when it comes to the uh, to the Zoom shows and to the driving shows and everything we're doing. Let's call it what it is. It is one hundred percent a band aid, right? So from the Absolutely. very beginning and from streaming in general, and and a lot, and I think I'm very open with everybody about how I feel about streaming generally trying to do, like even when a rooftop was happening years and years ago, and, and anytime anybody approaches the club to say, hey, we have this idea where we want to stream shows online, I'm usually not that for it. In this scenario, you know, of course, when that's happening, we're not in the middle of a global pandemic. So it's a little bit different. In this scenario, I think that the Zoom shows are 100% not the same as going to a stand-up show. And, 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 and I don't think anybody should expect it to be as 
uh, fulfilling as going to a stand-up show because there's nothing that you can do that will replace being in a small club with a stand-up comic on the stage and a hundred-person audience, you know that you can't replicate that in any way unless you're actually there. So it's it's it it is a band-aid. And the reason we're trying to do these Zoom shows, and Amelia's been gung ho about the Zoom shows from the very beginning, you know, and and God bless you for that. And you know, I'm hundred percent on board with doing what we can during this pandemic to keep the brand alive. The point here is to keep the brand relevant, to keep it out there so people see New York Comedy Club is still here. We're, we're doing what we can during this pandemic, but it's just a bridge from the closing to the opening. That's all, you know, Emilio has different visions of it, of course. Like he sees it as when we reopen, it's still going to be something that we can do. And you know what? I've been wrong before with Emilio's grand ideas, you know? <laughs> but I do think that when we do reopen, the last thing people are going to want to fucking see, and I know for myself, is a goddamn Zoom screen. Okay? Yeah, really. <laughs> I, I, I honestly do believe that. And and we really, on a much... How different is Zoom than when we had the ability or have the ability to stream a show which already has an audience that's laughing? You know, I mean... Even so, those things didn't really take off that well, and they were a monumental amount of work. You know, uh, you know, uh, keeping records of, of permission forms and contracts and agreements. You know, as a pain in the neck. You know, but and then the most important thing to any of this, and maybe sometimes my brain tends to go to the money a little too much, is the monetizing of all of this. You know, let's take one of these drive-in shows. You've got to rent a theater. You've got to pay the comics. You've got to, you know, rent some kind of stage and sound system staff. I know a guy who's doing it, and you know, out in out on the West Coast, and it's costing him about eight thousand dollars to rent the space, rent the, the 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 stage. Which I told him, why don't you do the pickup truck thing? But he wanted to get a stage. It's costing him eight, and his gross potential is if he sells everything out and everything goes right maybe 10 grand. So he's maybe looking at two grand, but that's if everything goes right. And, you know, we didn't even count promoting the damn thing. So that's got to eat into his profit. So at the end of the day, is it profitable? I, I just don't know. And, you know, uh, all of these things are ideas. And like, I think Scott had it best. It's a Band-Aid. And Emilio's got the enthusiasm to do it, so you do it, I guess, to keep your brand there. But at the end of the day, I really think that the moment they tell us you're back in business, I think you're going to have business coming back. I don't know how, to what extent, but I think there'll be business coming back. People want to get out. I, now, what's a little depressing is down here uh, in Florida, they have allowed restaurants to open up at 50%. And unless those restaurants are like beach restaurants where they get a very beachy young crowd, you know, sitting at high tops eating pizza or whatever, most of the sit-down restaurants have been very quiet, very quiet, you know, and, you know, they're not getting the audience out there. So it's, it's, um, it's a very uh, um, tough situation. Oh, Al, and do we I have... Do we have any clarity if we're phase three or four? What, I mean, because technically oh, we're we, phase four. We're we are entertainment. Well, I, yeah, I Amelia always thinks because it says uh, 
um, eating and drinking restaurant. establishment on our on our liquor license that we're a restaurant. But I, I, I no, the health the health departments come into some places down in Florida, uh, and they said, "Listen, you're not uh, eating. You know, serving no. pretzels on your bar doesn't make you uh, an eating establishment. <laughs> hey, we do popcorn. It's going to be based on what your volume of food is, I think. You know, and and I think that in your situations, even though I've always felt you should do some food there, you don't do it. I don't think you're going to be enough food uh, to to qualify as an eating and drinking establishment. You know, yeah. I, I think, I think we're in phase four and that's, if all phases go right, you're looking at mid August, the best, and probably early to, to mid September is the probable. And know? what do you and, think? What do you think the reality is? September comes along and people start to freak out because in October, everyone's expecting the second wave. And then before we even get that opportunity open, I'm curious. Put can you put a percentage on it? What yeah, do you think yeah, they'll say? Yeah, you know think, what? Let's yeah. just shut it all down until until the vaccine or spring. And then what does a vaccine I mean? You know, are people still? Well, yeah. So uh, is a vaccine going to come out, Al, and all of a sudden no one? You know, we're like free again. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Do you? I think. Uh, I think what's going to happen is if we, either way, it almost doesn't matter. Uh, whether it's August or September, in my view, because we're not going to have a whole lot of tourists in New York unless unless there's a major push by New York City and says, you know, you can get hotel rooms that are usually $300 a night and they'll do $59 a night just to drive business back or in restaurants will be cutting. you know, And then you're always going to get those people that if the price is right, they're going to come to New York and take a chance and that's it. Oh, I'll never get this opportunity again to visit New York for, you know, $80 a night in a hotel. And that's going to, that kind of thing will happen, but I don't know if it's going to happen in time for this summer. And I think that take all the tourists out of New York city in, in the summer. And what do you have left business wise? The locals are in the Hamptons or the Jersey shore. Or, or you know upstate, so you don't have that many locals, and you don't have that many um, tourists. So August, this particular August, could be absolutely horrific. Uh, and then when you open in September, at least my experience has always been it's a very slow time of year, September, because what you're dealing with in September is um, you're dealing with um, uh, back to school. So a lot of your College students who are a good core of all of our audiences, they're going to be busy buying books, getting back to school, dealing with their dorm situation here in New York or whatever they're doing, you know, and then and then later in the month, you get the Jewish holiday. So September is usually a, a wash. So we're going to open to the crappiest time of year either month. So be prepared in your financial planning for October and October, like you said, you don't know. There could be a second wave. You know, right now, I'm very encouraged of what's going on in Australia, uh, because in Australia right now, it's their winter. Uh, so in, in, in Australia, they're going through what would ordinarily become their repopping of the virus. And it seems to be under control down there. And it seems to be okay. So, but I don't know. That doesn't mean it's not going to morph into something as we head into our winter. But 
if they go through with this whole lockdown situation again, you know, it, it would be devastating. And, but, you know, just to one more point, they're already showing with the testing that a lot of New Yorkers, almost 40% of New Yorkers so far have been exposed to this virus and have had it or been exposed to it and were asymptomatic. Uh, so there might be a herd immunity developing to the whole thing. So I, but, but we don't know any of, you know, we're not on the science end of it, but I think if it goes to one of your points that you once said that we won't be reopening till next year, I think it's going to be Armageddon, not only for us, but for the landlords involved. <laughs> well, I mean, if that's the case, then the federal government is going to have to do something because there's no way that you can have these commercial leases for a year paying full rent. It's out. I mean, it's not it's not possible. I mean, you know, all the loans, all this kind of stuff will run out. And I don't think it's entirely unlikely that we would be closed for a year. You know, if if we do, if we don't get a second wave, I think it'll be okay. But again, it's all speculation. Uh, you know, who the, we we really have no idea. You know, so, yeah. so you know, I, I want to get into the book, but real quickly, Al. So you've been yeah. in, you know, that you've been in comedy or owning and operating comedy clubs for over thirty years. And you know, I got into a spirited debate the other day with someone um, about my view was, you know, I've been in New York now for twenty years, um, right out of college, and and I argued that I've I, personally, for me, and again, it's only been 20 years, but living through 9-11 and, and the financial crisis to now this, for me personally, I, this is a totally different animal. Now, the person I was arguing with was a little older, and he, he claimed that 9-11 was just as bad, which is I was too young to really understand it because I was right out of college. I didn't have the responsibilities I have now. But uh, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, for being in this over 30 years, could you even compare this to anything? Like when 9-11 happened, did you – because when this happened a bunch of months ago, I, I specifically remember – I spoke to people who owned restaurants and bars. They called it right out of the gate. They're like, this is going to be a real problem. And I was like, this you is, think? Yeah. You know, this now is, when 9-11 yeah. happened – so the feeling of 9-11 happening versus this happening, is it – were you as – were no, you no, this is – to me, this is much worse. Because 911 was a horrible thing. It devastated the city. But, you know, social media wasn't really around. So we were all very unified as a country. And, you know, we just, you know, we were together. You know, now this whole pandemic thing, 50% of the population feels one way about it. 50% of the population feels the other way about it. So we're fighting about all of that. But it's also much worse from one thing. You could see yourself eventually, you know, as time goes on, getting away from the fear of the 911. You know, I remember, uh, and people remind me about it, that I uh, back then posted something. Uh, it might have been on MySpace at the time. I don't know what was operating, but I made an announcement somewhere. It might have been on my avails line that we're opening up. We're opening up, even if just for the comics, to stop in, do spots. I don't care if there's nobody there, but we're opening. And that was kind of the spirit back then in New York that eventually we're going to get open. But this pandemic raises very serious issues, you know, like second wave and, uh, you know, uh, the, the fight between opening and not opening. You know, I always find it curious, the people that don't 
that are in no hurry to reopen, they seem to be the ones that are either working on some job, uh, making money, um, you know, and can you guys hear me? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was just um, wondering. But, you know, um, everybody that is working doesn't seem to be in any hurry to reopen, whether they're getting, you know, pensions and social security or they're getting uh, public assistance or they're civil servants and their jobs have not been impacted or, or they're medical people, you know, but people who are essential workers and getting paid, they're the ones who say, stay home, you know, but when you have, especially guys like you who have put everything you have into a business, you know, uh, I'm older, but you know, it's got to be horrifying. It's scary as all hell. You busted your asses. You hustled to get to where you are and, and, and the energy of the clubs you created and the second one. And now, unless you get some kind of cooperation or a massive amount of debt, it's all going to be destroyed, you know, in, in, in a pandemic like this. I mean, nobody can afford to pay full rent for a year and not do any business. And the only way that you're being told, the only way to do that is to either exhaust your life savings or go into heavy debt. Are either of those attractive act options? I don't think so. Nobody else, nobody else is being asked to do that. The politicians, the civil servants, uh, uh, the retirees, uh, people on assistance, they're all getting their paycheck. The only ones who are being asked to either go into debt or wipe out your savings to stay in business is the entrepreneurs. And look, that's that's the risk we take when we go when we're you of know course. that's the risk we take, and this this is the deal, you know, and this is going to separate, you know, this is going to separate people from people who are are just going to pack up and leave, and other people who are going to fight. And I can tell you right now, Mueller and I will fight through this, and. We will do. I will die before I let this. This I will literally die before I let this dream go. <laughs> the bottom line, you know, and and I told I texted that to Emilio the other day. I said I don't give a shit what happens. I will die before <laughs> before I let this go. Whether that means we lose our leases and we find a new space or what, I don't care. I'll open up the comedy well, club listen, in my recording becoming, studio. I don't care. That's becoming a very real option for a lot of businesses. You know, you ask me what I do have been doing during this pandemic. I was spending a lot of time on webinars and listening into other business people and what they're talking about. And there's a very real movement, uh, especially in the restaurant industry of people uh, that are contemplating, you know, if they have a landlord that they can't get anywhere with and they're insisting on the rent, they're just saying, Hey, I got X amount of dollars in the bank. Uh, I'm holding on to this money. Um, I might just put this business for now on hiatus and pause and, and close it up. There's going to be a lot of real estate out there in about a year from now or six months from now that you're going to be able to probably strike a real good deal on and they're going to be fairly built out. And, you know, that that might be the new scenario for some people. I don't know. It's such a tough this. It's such a tough thing because the, the, the amount of money it takes to actually open a place uh, it's a lot of yeah. money, you know, to get the liquor yeah, license, but, you to know, get, a, you know, all the stuff, the public assembly. Be, yeah, but that money, 
you might be down to just legal fees and the cost of a liquor license. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not saying any of this is happening to any of us, but you know, you turn in your liquor license, you got a credit on that and you just wait it out somehow. And in a year from now, if Emilio's uh, theory is correct, you're going to be able to find a lot of real estate that's built out. Yeah, that's going to be so half the rent. To, right. And you just need to apply for a liquor license and, and uh, you know, go through that process. But you're not going to put a lot of effort and work into building it out. A lot of these restaurants have been built out by somebody else. And to be able to get out of their lease, they just had to turn in their keys. So there comes a point where you have to decide. And I'm just throwing out an example. Let's say you've got a hundred grand somewhere that you have in reserve now, and you can either use that money to pay the landlord, or you can uh, you can either pay the landlord, or you can uh, hold it and just reopen in a year. And you don't know how to make that decision because you know we're all kind of planning for an August or September opening. But what if Emilio is right and the virus comes up and the city shuts down again? Then you almost got to be ready based on what we've seen for about a, another four to five, six months of shutdown, which puts you next year already. Well, this is so, why I mean, look, this. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I, this is why yeah. I think it's so important. And I've been saying this, you know, is that we all remain vigilant and on, on, on the phase and trust the fact that, you know, if we start going out and just acting as if this thing isn't still among us, then the second wave will happen. So that's why I'm saying like, I don't want to reopen in an irresponsible way. That's going to force a second wave. It's better to be closed now for another month or two or three than it is to open up now too early and then have a second wave and be closed until next year. And so right. there are so many people that are out there right now in New York going out without masks, yeah. drinking on the I streets, you know, it. like it's, groups of people just hanging out. And there's, yeah, there's, there's clubs that are trying to do shows outside on the sidewalk, you know, and I'm not, I, I personally feel it's socially irresponsible. And that kind of behavior is what's going to make it last until next year. And oh, yeah. those businesses are going to be the ones that are closed and that are going to have to shut their doors forever. It's, so you it's know. a really, hey, listen, we're not even talking about the other side of this. And if you ask me, I think we are in some sort of depression right now that nobody is admitting to, but let's, let's say, let's say this all happens. You think the landlords are going to be able to last until next year? No. It all depends on it. All depends. It all depends on your particular landlord. If your landlord has owned the space for a long time and he's mortgage free, he's got a lot more flexibility. But if your landlord just bought that building and he's paying off a, a large nut in the building, a large mortgage, and was relying on his commercial tenants to provide a certain amount of money on his lease, he's going to have very little flexibility. You know, on terms of what he wants to do. But the reality is, what else is he doing with the space? But, you know, some people don't see it that way. So it's all, all of these are going to be. But why are on. these why are these uh, owners of buildings not getting any kind of assistance? Because the property taxes go to the city. Right. They go to the fire department. They go to the police, all this kind of stuff. So 
the federal government needs to come in and help in this scenario so that the 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 building owners are not paying these don't have There's to pay these mortgages at way. what point at what to... right at what point is it going to give at what point is it just not going to We're not gonna... far off where yeah. it's going to give because if more listen there was a law passed in New York now I don't know if you're aware of it and the law is that if you have any kind of good guy clause in your lease are you familiar with the good guy clause and what it is very of familiar course, yeah. of course <laughs> yeah but I mean, so, why don't you why don't you describe it to the uh, listeners Al? Yeah, basically, you know, most landlords want you to sign a lease with a personal guarantee that if the business goes under, you're going to honor that lease. What a good guy clause is basically is if you give the landlord enough of a notice, return the keys, clear up any past debt, and give him back his keys and the place in good shape, then you can get out of there, which allows him then to re-rent it and he has enough notice. You might lose your security deposit in the process to make up for any debts, but you're out of there relatively clean. Now, the city of New York has passed a bill. It's called Bill Number 1932, which says you have until, I think, August 30th or September 30th to turn in your keys, and then any good guy clause you have is eliminated. You're off the hook for any personal guarantees and you can get out of it. Now, the, the, the landlords might fight that. They might get a temporary injunction. Who knows? But that was just passed and signed into law this week. So you might now see that accelerate if, if, because this now becomes a weapon in the hand of the tenant where they say, hey, I can get out of this lease. I don't owe you any more money. And here's your keys. I'm out of here. You know, And that's going to put a little more of a squeeze on landlords. And they're going to have to make a decision very soon whether they make a deal with their tenant uh, and, you know, give them an addendum to their lease or or the tenant's just going to leave and turn in the keys with no consequences. So you're going to see it now starting to escalate over the next couple of months. See, the, the, pro- the problem is if we ever decided to do that, take that route and say, you know what, we got these loans. We can't deal with the landlords. Let's give them our keys. Wait a, a year and we'll regroup. The problem there, Scott, is that Al will then own four comedy clubs. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 and again, I love you, Al, but next thing you know, Al reaches out to us. Hey, guys, you want to produce a couple of shows? And <laughs> we're back, well, where we, we're or, back where we started. History repeats or, itself. Or you might see a consolidation in the business. Where yeah. some people, you know, I, I'm just throwing, you know, I'm just saying, well, listen, I've, I'm a person who's seen it all, done it all. I see people all the time. You know, uh, you never know what situations bring out, but, you know, you, you never know uh, wh- where it goes. But something is better than nothing, but you might be able to come out of it without any scars. It's all going to depend on your landlord and then what your landlord's going to be able to do either with the city in terms of taxes or, or renegotiate with their bank, their mortgage. And you know, that's where it's, and it's, there's no answer for that. It's every case is going to be a little different. Oh, you know, I think that's a good transition to pivot now into the book. Yeah, Al, um, you I, said, I, uh, I hope I didn't depress you guys. With, no, with no, my, no. Please, no. Al, it's the reality. 
you have uh, you have seen it all and done it all, and uh, it's kind of in the title of your book. Um, you did it all on a dare. How you created a comedy empire in th- thirty short years. Uh, the book yeah. is out. Now. It's a it's a it's a good read. I uh, highly suggest anybody who's in the business to get the book and give it a good read. Uh, what was in the what was your thought process of writing a book? Like what why why write a book? Well, you know, and. Scott, so you guys are in it six years. Just repeat all this five more times the last six years. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you'll be where, where, where I'm at. Just to depress you even more. But right. um, you pick up, look, and you guys, I'm sure, along the way, you pick up stories, you pick up anecdotes, you pick up different things along the way that happen in your career. And you, you remember them and you write them down or you keep a note. You know, I guess... Somewhere around five, six years ago, I was thinking, hey, you know, I think I got enough stuff in here where I could write a book. And and it's funny because then I started remembering once the book came out, I started remembering even more stories. And I said, what the hell? Why didn't I put that in there? You know, but I'd say about two years ago, I really decided I wanted to do this. But, you know, when you're operating two clubs and, you know, doing a million things and doing it, you know, by yourself with, with a couple of trusted staff members, but pretty much, you know, you're, you're running it. Um, it you know, and people think because you're not at the club all the time, you're not doing stuff, you know, but with modern technology and cameras and very little cash anymore, it's mostly all credit cards. It's possible to run a, you know, I'm in Florida six months a year and I'm running my businesses. So, you know, the thing, the thing is, I had no time to write this book. And then pandemic came along and I said, holy crap, now I have the time. I got all the time in the world. I get up and what am I doing? I'm, you know, doing nothing. So that's when I really decided to put, you know, pen to paper and and write a book and, and get an editor and, you know, have them go over any mistakes and put the stories all to paper. So you wrote this whole thing when the pandemic started? Yeah, I mean, listen, I had the notes. I, you know, I've been building up notes through the years in a file. And for the day where I would either retire or really cut back. But then the, pand- the pandemic did it for me. I was, my hand was forced. I had nothing to do. I got to see what retirement would be like. And um, I said, I better keep busy with a project, you know, and... You know, I already got a project in mind if uh, Pandemic 2 starts in uh, November. I, and, wish, uh, I wish everyone could see what we can see right now, because if you could see Emilio's face, you could just tell he's like, I got to write a book. I'm oh, you, don't a think, book. You, you only have been writing chapters for the last? <laughs> well, no, speaking, um, of, speaking of chapters, Al, you, uh, you have one titled, uh, what I believe it was uh, The Pariah and the Charmer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, who, what the hell is that? About? Who's that about? Am I, I, we need to know. We need to clear this. Am I the pariah? <laughs> oh, you know, I what, what know is that? definitely what is not that? the charmer. Let's well, I know, I know. I, obviously, I would be the pariah. But is that is that the title? Is that me and Emilio? <laughs> you know, I think uh, I think my editor did take some liberties. And when you write a book, oh, so you you're going to blame it on your editor? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm blaming uh, you know a, a few different things uh, on my editor. A couple of words changed here, and she did a remarkable job. I'm going to say, you know, she really did. I'm not an easy person to always put up with, uh, and you know, um, 
she did a, a very good job. Um, we're arguing right now, but you know, but uh, she did really a good job overall. There were a couple of things that she changed. Uh, uh, just you could change a little word. I mean, look at this, Pariah and the. Uh, you know, she'll tell you I approved of it, but. Uh, what I'm trying to say is when you read a book 14 times, after a while, you're going through the motions just a little bit. A, uh, you know, It's like a comic who does the same bit for 10 years. You don't possibly have the same enthusiasm 10 years later as you did the first time you did the bit. It, it becomes a little routine after a while. But uh, basically the chapter, I think, was talking about you selling the club to you two guys, right? Yeah, it was. And I, and I got to say, Pariah and Charmer is actually a pretty accurate description of Emilio, <laughs> of Emilio and I, especially well, at that time. Well, now I remember why it was called the Pariah. Uh, now I remember, actually. Okay. <laughs> I believe in that chapter, there was always an ongoing theme. Uh, my good friend Chris Murphy, in the early years, in the early 90s, I once complained to him, and I said, you know, God damn it, you know, everybody... Louis Ferrander, who's still around, Louis Ferrander at the, at the time he was at Catch. But Louis Ferrander's, the, everybody talks about him and everybody talks about Silver Friedman. Everybody talks about all these people and, and Lucian over at the comic strip. Nobody ever talks about me. Like, nobody ever thinks I'm important. And I always thought back to the time of the Comedy Cellar broadcast uh, when I was talking to you guys that I was on it. And Scott got livid. What do you mean? We own a comedy club in New York. Why didn't anybody ask us on that show? Yeah, so, I really wanted to be on that because I wanted to, t you know, I, I wanted to say a few words. But you know, we can. Yeah, do. but but what I well, the point I was just trying to make was when I said that to Chris Murphy in like '92, he said to me, "Al, you're lucky. Stay under the radar. It's the best thing in the world. You'll be able to operate, build your business." Nobody will bother you. And one of the few times he happened to have been right. So when, <laughs> when, that, when that occurred almost 25 or 26 years later, uh, and I guess it was a couple of years after you bought the club, and you said to me, uh, uh, Scott, you said, yeah, why aren't we, you know, and, and I, I remember saying, you're lucky you're under the radar, yeah. you know, because then, you know, you're not going to be the target. So it came up. It was like it was like a twenty-seven year journey huh. where I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be noticed and recognized. And then it was only almost twenty-five years later when I sold the club to you guys that Scott asked the same question: Why am I? Uh, why am I not being respected? Or you know. Considering a club owner in New York. Well, I think that's a great point. And, you know, for me, like, I'm I, I'm generally under the radar because I like to hide in the basement of the club and not talk to anybody and hide in a corner. And people are like, why is the janitor, you know, so angry? Uh, <laughs> well, and I Emilio is out you. there charming everybody, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can tell you, when I first started, I was a lot like Emilio. I wanted to... Uh, talk to every comedian and you know at that time it was guys like bill hicks and lewis black and and brett butler and uh, people of that nature um and i wanted to soak up everything and i wanted to have every conversation i could have with them and then fast forward almost 30 years later i want to be like scott i just want to hide in the when i come in 
It's like you could be in the middle of a conversation with somebody and a comic will just bolt right in and interrupt like you weren't talking to somebody, you know, or they do what I call the hover round. You're <laughs> talking to somebody about business that's important and they sort of hover and they don't get it that you're talking to somebody and they're, it's like they're breathing on top of you. <laughs> so you got to turn around and say, can I help you with something? What, what, how you, oh, I just wanted to say hello. You couldn't say hello to me like from 25 feet away and wait till I'm done with the conversation like a normal person, you know? But well, especially at 24th Street. I mean, at least at Broadway, you know, once you got in there, you must have felt like, oh, man, I'm, this is nice and I spacious. I can, I can hide in that. I can, you know, you have the bar area you can go into. Right. You got the upstairs in New York. I, I mean, know. The only place I can hide I can is, the, is the that basement. old uh, boiler room. That's yeah, a, yeah, with the ghosts. Yeah, exactly. There are ghosts down there. Yeah. So, but uh, <laughs> but you know, I will say this. So, first of all, I I I I fucking loved the book. Okay, and I, I don't. And he read did. Nearly- he, he texted me. He was like, "My God!" He texted everybody in in the New York Comedy Club uh, circle and was and said, "You guys all have to read this book." Well, for, it was amazing, Al, because I felt like it was like your way of being like enough's enough. You know, like I yeah. need to kind of I want to get some of these stories out and I will say this you were as I mean at least a chapter for us it was so accurate I mean it was I, I was like did Al record was he recording <laughs> our conversations like that no, yeah, I, yeah, I, I remember yeah I wrote but, you know I remember and wrote you know and you, and and you I didn't basically have, take it down a timeline that's pretty much what I did and you didn't hold back you know in your in your years of of being in the position you are, I mean, you kind of have like this tree. I mean, you're almost kind of like, you know, we always joke about the Steinbrenner thing, but you're almost like a, a Bill Belichick where you do have like your your o- old assistant coaches and your old offensive coordinators. They all have branched out and they become their own head coaches, right? Right, so, right, right. And you've had, look, did anyone, because, you know, again, I read it and I was reaching out to you as I was reading. I'm like, yeah, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? <laughs> were other people, because there were a couple stories in there and I'm going to name names where I'm like, whoa, I'm like, do these people know that they're going to be in this book and in this kind of color? I guess nobody knew they were going to be in the book, but I, I would think the way things travel in comedy <laughs> that they will soon find out or know, you know, and they, I don't really care. That's why I wrote the book. Has anyone reached out to you about like, Hey, Al, I heard I'm in this book. Uh, uh, well, one person so far has reached. Oh no. Uh, so no, one person not. has so far reached out. Uh, but you know, that was because there was a slight, um, change of words, let's say by the editor, <laughs> I'm blaming her again. But I actually have the emails between myself and her where she kind of made it look like he was I was calling him a terrible comedian. But but generally speaking, um, nobody really has reached out to me except to tell me stuff like what you said, that they really love the brutal honesty of the book. Now, um, now is there yeah. actually an editor or do you just make that person up so that you can blame them for things? No, no, there is an editor. That I, <laughs> you have the editor, yeah, that damn, a damn editor. Uh, the you know, sometimes when you, I'm not the greatest typer in the world, so you know, I I, I was in the Hunt and Peck uh, era of typing. Uh, I grew up when you came out of gym class and and you went to typing class, and I said, "What do I need typing for? I'm not going to be a secretary." And then, like <laughs> 15 years later, the PC came along. You know, so um, I. Um, 
I, 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 to be honest with you, um, needed an editor, but I, I, I think there's some great stories in there. Uh, we, we reviewed, which was a time of horror for you guys, but the whole Sarah Silverman thing, we went, we went through that. We cover it in the book. We cover me trying to open up on McDougal street and, you know, a, a lot of st- comic stories about certain particular comedians. Um, and people ask me who DD was in the book. I thought I eventually did say who he was at, in maybe the last chapter. I don't know. But uh, it was very cathartic for me to write the book. I finally was able to get back at people who, um, who I feel wronged me in certain ways. Or, you know, there, there, you know, there are really two generations of people that Al Martin has dealt with. You know, the very early years when I was a very different person and then now the later years. So I, I always say, I always try to remember when I talk to people what era they remember me from because there were very two, honestly, as I grew as a person, as I became more secure as a person, as I got more grounded uh, a big part of that was my wife and getting married and having a family. I changed and I became different. All right. Well, the, the book is called I Did It on a Dare, uh, How I Created a Comedy Empire in 30 Short Years. The book is on bookshelves everywhere. Uh, you download it on your Kindle app and Amazon. Uh, it's a great read, as I said. Uh, but before we get out of here, I know I know the fellas have a couple questions. Scott. Well, I know you wanted to ask Al something, so go ahead there. Yeah, I'm sure. just curious. Look, you've been doing comedy for, or involved in comedy for 30 years. And uh, if you could take the comedy time machine back to the very beginning when you first decided to open a club and start doing this, what piece of advice would you give yourself? <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> other, other than don't do it, other than quit. No, you know what? I got to be honest with you. Um, if anybody would know my mother, my mother loves to fight. She's a fighter, you know, and she's always been a fighter. And when I see people get up every single day and get on a train or have to put on a suit and a tie and go to work at a nine to five job and, and hate what they do, um, then I really appreciate what I do. You know, there, there have been days I've been frustrated, community boards, neighbors, health department inspections, uh, some comedian making me wait till 10 seconds before their spot to rush in on a Saturday night, nine o'clock show, and I don't have anybody else at the bar ready to go up. So yes, there's been very frustrating moments throughout my, my years. But when I go to a party, a cocktail party with a bunch of other people and couples, you can have at that party lawyers, judges, physicians. Nobody ever congregates around them. When they hear that I own a comedy club, the whole focus of the room comes to me. Because there's not a lot of people that do what we do and have seen what we see. And everybody on some level loves comedy or has a favorite comedian that they like. So even though we're in this every day and we take it for granted, it's a gift. I really do believe that. And I bitch and moan sometimes. But Emilio and Scott, we have a gift. We have a gift to be able to do something that I think at least 
Emilio has maybe you have more passion on the behind the scenes stuff and the audio. I think Emilio just really has a passion for the comedy itself and the business. But in any event, you guys are in it and enjoy it because the way you guys and I are dressed on this podcast is the way we dress every day. You know, we don't we don't have to dress differently to go to work. You know how you know what it's like for a 90 degree day to have to wear a suit and tie and mm. get on a subway train and and, you know, have to work in a cubicle from nine to five. While we've been on the phone, I've been getting calls from a Yelp exec- executive three times trying to sell me on a business that gives me bad ratings. How miserable must that guy be no. to do that? And we get to do this every day, you know. And, and like what we do at the end of the day. So I hope that answered your question. That's a, that's I think a that's point. a fantastic answer. And I love the fact that all the people keep congregating around you in the room. And the reason that is, is because everybody thinks they're a stand-up or wants to try stand-up comedy and they think they can get to you to get some stage time. <laughs> well, whatever it is, or they just want to hear the story. Yeah. Everybody comedy is so enamored by comedy and they're so enamored yeah. by it. They're like, Oh really? You, you own know, a comedy club? What? That must be interesting. You know, lawyers are a dime a dozen. The doctors are, there's a million of them. How many people could have stories about, you know, Jim Gaffigan and Sarah Silverman and Lisa Lampanelli and, and all the dozens of people that have come through during the years and that make up who people love to watch on TV. It's true. Yeah. Those, and those stories are uh, about the people that they see on TV, but it's, for us, it's like they're just regular people that we're just hanging right. out with. And that's why the stories are interesting to them because they're like, oh, that so, person on TV is actually a real person. They do the same things that I do. Oh, my God. And they well, say, real, yeah. real, per- you use real person loosely. They're comics. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, the most fascinating w- thing is you could go on to McDougal Street, go to the corner at Ben's Pizzeria, see five guys eating a $2.50 slice of pizza and a, and a Coca-Cola. And there's probably a hundred million dollars of net worth at that, <laughs> at that place. Right. You can see Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Ray Romano, you know, all, Tracy Morgan, all sitting there eating a pizza and combined, they're probably worth a hundred million bucks at least. So that's the fascinating thing about comedy. Even those guys, they don't, you know, they walk around they don't, they don't look at themselves as, they're comics. Yep. You know, they didn't. It's a different breed. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay. Yeah. And especially from the comedy club perspective. I mean, we, we have that luxury of being there really from the beginning, you know, when, when we have a lot of these industry showcases and you see all these agents and comedy central execs come in and, and, you know, they, they're so not in the loop like we are, you know, but when you're in a club like we are, um, you just, you really are there from the beginning and you see these guys and meet these guys. I mean, you know, Al, you've obviously been this so much longer, but like, you know, I, I love the idea of like, you know, knowing and meeting these guys before they're anything. And no matter how big they get, you knew what they were like before, you know, oh, and yeah. neat, you know, and, you know, and even with the agents, you know, I remember, and I think I talk about it in the book, yep. uh, Kevin James's agent, um, Jeff, uh, Jeff Sussman, who used to come to the Monday night open mic every week when he was just starting out. And he would ask me, anybody look good? Anybody coming up the ranks? Anybody look interesting? And uh, he's gone on to great heights in this business. So 
it's definitely um, something that I love that part of the business. It's something that makes me unique and uh, it, it just allows me to be me. I could never take working in a suit and a tie with a boss on top of me. I, you know, I always said to somebody, I'd rather operate a hot dog stand somewhere than work in a nine to five job and be miserable. You know, at least you're outdoors all day talking to people and, you know, yeah. getting around. So to me, that was a big, big, big thing. Yeah. That's uh, I, I tend to agree with you, but uh, Emilio, I know you have a, a question or two. Or no, you, I think uh, I think it's a great way to end it. You know, I think it's a perfect way to end it. And well, I mean, uh, yeah, like, you know, I appreciate you uh, all the knowledge, you know what I mean? And, um, and I think, you know, it's funny, you know, like even now, like you keep saying, I've been in this for 30 years, I'm older than you guys. I mean, you're as quick as anybody. I, and I do mean that. I mean, like I asked Al when we were offline earlier, I'm surprised you being down in Florida, you're not looking at spaces. Um, you know, that's just how you are. Um, but uh, No, I look and I see. And then I remember he, he is looking. Like <laughs> to own a place down. Well, listen, when you're in business, you always have to have five options for any one situation because you just don't know how option one is going to turn out because option one might be dependent on other people. And you just have to also think three moves ahead as best as you can. Yeah. Now, some people have that ability, some people don't, but you, you, you can't, you always have to leave yourself an escape hatch and a way to get out and be able to fight another day if necessary, you know? So, it's so, I, it's that's it's so true. Amelia and I are always I'm I'm always thinking. Okay, well, what are we going to do when this closes? Or when we lose this lease, where are we going to go? You know, it's never it's never. Oh, we're going to shut down, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go sell hot dogs. You know, um, no, you're gonna you're you're gonna look. Your goal has to be any which way you can to reopen these two spaces that you put a lot into, and a, and a lot for. However, you know, I don't know what your situation has been with each landlord or, or with the leases or whatever, but the day might come, you might say, hey, uh, we, we made it on both of these places. We're going to come through to the other side. On the other hand, if that's not possible, you try to save one, you know, you try to save one arm, you know, whichever arm is going to be more important to you and, and what you can do. Um, or... You know, that's the tough part we're in if we've got a second. You know, the tough part that we're in is that how far the line do you go to save what you already have and how much money do you put into it? Or are you able to hold back the money while you're doing what you need to do with your current landlords? And then if it just doesn't work out, you have that money to fight another day. You know, that's really the discussion. And at think, what point do you pivot? I think it comes down to how married you are to those spaces. Do you know what I mean? Again, you have two spaces. We have two spaces here in the city and it's, you know, how married are you to it? Cause you're right. I'm on these restaurant chat groups and man, these restaurant owners, God bless them. They are losing their shit. And yeah, so yeah. many of them, so many of them, half of them are not really American citizens. I mean, they have visas, but they're not getting some of the things that they need because of that. So a lot of them are like, you know what? I'm just going to fight another, live in a fight another keys. day, yeah, give it in my keys. keys, and I'll be back. So to them, they're like, whatever. I can operate in any space. I think for us, 
because comedy, I mean, ambiance means a lot in restaurant, but I don't know. Like I, I adore the spaces that we have. And I know you feel the same about yours, you know, you, oh. have, two, you have two very different spaces or I mean, you have three, three stages, but you have right, right. very different clubs, you know, Broadway, oh, you got that one, two punch of the big room and the, the upstairs room is, I think your upstairs room is probably the most underrated room probably in the country. That room is so yep. fucking awesome. I know. I love Greenwich, that room. You got Greenwich Village, which is like this little, like, you know, this little dojo kind of, you know, just kind of like, you know, it's a killer room. And I know, I don't know where your head's at with that, but for us, like to leave 24th street, just to fight, to say, Hey, okay, we're going to find a great space another year and we'll leave there. I mean, that would just be heartbreaking. And, and, and mainly because there is a legacy to it, at least in, in I know Scott and I are, are very, uh, we care very much about the history of that space. The, I love what I love when you put those YouTube videos up. I love hearing about the old stories. Every now and then, you put like the promotional flyers there. You know, like right. sort of, like the stuff you used to put in the papers. You know, the New York comedy. Right, it was a different era when there was you, when you were able to advertise in papers. Yeah, and you got to move. I mean, listen, you moved the New York Comedy Club to a different space, but I don't know. Just the idea of not being in the spaces we are really, really sucks. But at the same time, if the landlords, it's just tough. It's a tough. It depends how married you are to those spaces. You know, and we're finding that honestly, we're finding a similar scenario with the studios. Scott put his whole, I mean, Scott put so much into the studio. He built it with his own hands, you know, and, you know, the idea of like not having a landlord who is at least understanding what's going on. I mean, to leave any space where you put that into, it's very, very difficult. Terrific. And and not to mention the physical work involved, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be, it's not going to be free getting out of a space no <laughs> well let me tell you something oh. on 24th street you have a lot of leverage there that you might not be aware of and i can always talk to you about that off the show uh but you know uh it's it's not going to be um you know that landlord is one of those landlords that just bought the building so you know he might be in a different expectation of what he needs you know you know, and whatever you do, you got to get it in writing. You know, and then the and, issue too, Al. The issue too, Al, is like you know, again, same with you. I'm sure we have a great relationship with our landlords. I mean, we we want the best for them. The problem is, is like now, if you if you put up a hard stance, if you try not to at least come to something, it disturbs the relationship. Next thing you know, you don't have a pleasant relationship. And then who knows, maybe they don't want to, uh, they don't want to extend your lease because they're holding on to some gripe, you know, and they're, you just don't know. It's a very delicate situation. I've, I've spoken with people, it's like, oh, you're not personally liable now. They can't evict you. Just don't pay. And we're like, well, they can't evict gonna you, right. They can't evict ruin you, our but that, that's only till August 30th. And then to be honest with you, um, you know, you have to make two decisions, one of two decisions, and that is. Try to work out the best deal you can with your current landlords and stay there, which makes the most sense economically because that's the places you've invested in. And I'll be honest with you, 24th Street is about as good as it gets for a room. I mean, you know, with, with the floor and the low ceiling and everything, I mean, comics love that room, always have. You know, it's a great kind of room like like even the villages. You know, it's that's what comedy was supposed to be when it was first built out. On the other hand, your space downtown is a little more spacious, a little bigger. And, you know, if you start thinking in terms of the new era, 
like what are they opening it as capacity wise and you have to make some you know you might have to make some hard decisions i don't know you know but at the end of the day um you, there are things you can do and and be able to make your fight a little better but you just got to figure out like if you take the theory that you want to save it how much do you put into saving it and then what happens if this all goes south again versus doing what your friend says you know you could probably last before they can ever take you out of there six months, at least three months until August 30th. And an eviction is going to take at least three to six months. So, you know, yeah. Uh, but the problem is like, who wants to go down you know, again, like you're in a relationship yeah, you with don't a landlord. Want to go down that yeah, they are. I mean, yeah. they really are. And he's a good landlord. Yeah, I, they're I mean, great. The they're great. Landlords. I dealt with, with the short time I dealt with Ronnie, he was great. And then, um, you know, the other landlord I didn't know as well. I met him once. Uh, when I looked at that space before you did, and I thought he was a real nice guy as well, you know, and I think, uh, I don't think he's a a big conglomerate landlord, you know, he's a guy just trying to make a few bucks off his property to pay his bills. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, well, look, decisions be made, but I think we're all, you know, I think, uh, like Scott said, we're committed, you're committed. um, And, you know, it's all about having open dialogue and being transparent with with everyone, you know, or at least the people where you're, you're dealing with. So I think the landlords hopefully understand that, you know, it's a lot, it's going to be, I, I would imagine it's more of a pain in the ass to have to find a new tenant in this climate than working with the existing one that you have. So. And your liquor license. Don't forget that. Yeah. Well, look, you know, we, we could go on probably for 10 hours and I think that, you know, Al, we should do this more often. We should have you on the podcast more often. You know, we could talk about all kinds of different shit, you know, throughout this process. I'd love to have you on more. I really appreciate you coming on. I'll net, I'll let Nick take us out, but Al, thanks so much for, for, for doing this. Did it on a dare on Amazon Uh, books, Amazon books, get the book now. It's it's out there now. how I did it on a dare, how I created a comedy empire in 30 short years. The man is Al Martin. Al, thanks for coming on. And, uh, you, you know, you know, keep, keep the fight up. Uh, we'll, we'll get through this. Um, we'll get through this not to be too cliche, but yeah, we'll, we'll get through this together. I'm, I'm sure of it. And I'm glad you came on and uh, talked with us and uh, Emilio Scott. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to the New York comedy club podcast and make sure you are checking out all the other cool shows we have on paper house network. Thanks for listening to the New York Comedy Club podcast. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And for tickets to the club, check out NewYorkComedyClub.com.